Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On Monday, we had some good news in the fight against coronavirus. The world has been waiting for a vaccine, some type of effective treatment for COVID-19. And drug maker Moderna said on Monday that its experimental coronavirus vaccine had induced an immune response in some of the healthy volunteers who were vaccinated in a clinical study. These are the first results for the first vaccine that has entered human testing. So these results are very preliminary and only for a portion of the study participants. But at this point, any news that we're getting on the good side of it is being looked at very closely. According to a Moderna chief executive, they said that the data suggests that this vaccine, it's called mRNA-1273, has a high probability to provide protection from COVID-19 disease in humans. And when something like this happens, shares on Wall Street go up. I think they went up about 27% for Moderna after uh, news of this had come out. So while we have some good news right now with this, we're still quite a ways before we will actually have a vaccine. The company said that their vaccine could be ready for emergency use as early as the fall if it continues to work in other testing. The FDA has given Moderna permission to begin their second stage of testing which uh, the phase two trial is going to be could involve about 600 people possibly. And the phase three trial, they said they could begin that in July. So things are moving very fast in this sense, but things might not be ready for the fall at the earliest. So a little bit more about this particular vaccine. Moderna co-designed this vaccine with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And they're the ones that are leading the clinical trial that began in March. And for some of the participants that ranged in age from 18 to 55, they were given various doses of the vaccine, and it said it increased immune responses, including boosts in certain antibodies to levels at or above those seen in blood samples from people who have recovered from COVID-19. So people that have recovered from COVID-19 have a, a certain level of antibodies. This vaccine was providing them with that same amount or more at least. And the responses, they said, included both binding antibodies, which attach to the viruses but don't prevent infection, as well as neutralizing antibodies, which do block infection. So it's working on two fronts, and the news is good on both. The results don't show whether the vaccine actually protected people from the disease caused by the virus. Uh, that's going to be looked at in further studies. But the antibodies are there. As far as side effects go... There weren't really too many. One participant experienced redness around the injection site and three other subjects that were receiving the highest dose that they were giving in these tests had systemic symptoms, which includes things like fever, muscle pains, and headaches. But they said that those symptoms went away after a day. That high dose, by the way, is being eliminated from future studies, not necessarily because of the side effects, but because the lower doses appear to work so well that the high dose is not needed. Uh, and that could be very beneficial that if they go with the lower dose, because that'll allow companies to to manufacture more of the vaccine and have it more readily available for people to use. 
So while this is all very good news, the findings actually don't prove that the vaccine works just yet. We still need larger, longer studies to determine whether it can prevent people from getting it in real-world situations. The other thing about Moderna's vaccine is that they're using genetic material from the virus called messenger RNA, uh, and sometimes they call it mRNA. This whole process and making vaccines in this way is still relatively new and has yet to produce any approved vaccine. But so far, the news is good, and uh, they're going to keep working on this one. But what happens next? You know, the, the next part of this is that governments and drug makers are looking at how to roll out a coronavirus vaccine, including reserving some of the first batches for healthcare workers and, and those that are very essential. There's more than 100 vaccines in development globally right now, and at least eight have started testing in humans. That includes the one from Moderna we were just talking about, others from Pfizer as well. And the big giants like Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, they're building up their capacity to make hundreds of millions of doses on their own or their partners vaccines once they get approved and and once they're proven to work. So there's still a long way to go on this. And right now, this is this larger rush right now to to line up funding for accelerated testing and expanded manufacturing, because once the vaccine gets approved, that's the next step. We have to manufacture enough of that vaccine to start using it more widely. There's a lot of drug makers who have been building up their capabilities to make these vaccines, and they've pledged to deliver millions of doses this year. Um, but, you know, a, a big supply to vaccinate the general population might not really become available until well into 2020. That's why we keep talking about with these things, with, these, with the vaccines, it's a long game. It takes a long time to get this. And public health officials and vaccine experts hope that more than one vaccine will cross the finish line to boost the total number of doses available. As we said, Moderna right now is the only one with some good news. So hopefully a few other vaccine candidates start sharing some good findings. And with this limited supply that's going to be initially available of these vaccines, everybody's already trying to see who would get first dibs on this. So companies receiving U.S. federal grants like uh, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Sanofi, they're expected to reserve some of those doses for Americans. But really, the first groups to get all of this would be at uh, at the head of the line for this would be any frontline healthcare workers, first responders, essential workers like grocery, pharmacy, food supply, and mass transit employees. Uh, You know, as we've been talking about for some time now, these essential employees that keep the economy going. Um, So they would all be at the front of the line to get some type of potential vaccine. So overall, some good news from Moderna. Hopefully, as I mentioned, we can get some more good news from other companies that are testing their own vaccines. But for now, some promising results out of Moderna. One of the big ongoing questions is how we might get back to normal. Many experts say it won't happen until we get a vaccine, which is still quite some time away. Others say something like herd immunity could also get us back. But it seems that without working in conjunction with the vaccine, herd immunity won't save us either. There are a number of unknown variables that need to be factored in, such as how long we have immunity for after recovering from COVID-19. And to meet this threshold without a vaccine, it could mean more deaths. For more on how we get to herd immunity, we spoke to Kaylee Rogers, reporter at 538.com. With the understanding that COVID-19 can sometimes have really mild or maybe even asymptomatic cases, 
a lot of us, myself included, we're, we're kind of wondering and, and hoping that maybe a lot of us have already had it. And, you know, we're, we're close to herd immunity than we thought. So we start doing these surveys, you know, checking people for antibodies to try and find out, you know, maybe a bunch of us have had it and we're, we're pretty close to herd immunity and we can get out of this sooner than we thought. That doesn't seem to be the case, unfortunately, with a lot of these surveys that we're, we're doing and, and seeing the, the antibody levels and the exposure within the community still seems to be pretty low. And it's really far from what we call the herd immunity threshold, which is the percentage of people we would need to be immune in order to stop the spread. And what percentage would that be for, uh, I, I know I used measles as an example. Let's say, what, what do we need for measles versus what we might need for COVID-19? It depends on how contagious a disease is that changes how, what percentage of people need to be immune. So for measles, it's very contagious. An average person that has measles, if they go into a population that's never been exposed to before, every, you know, none of them are immune, they're on average going to spread it to 12 to 18 people. So that's very contagious. And because of that, we need 93 to 95% of a population to have immunity in order to stop the spread of measles. For COVID-19, of course, we're still learning about it. Um, we're not exactly sure the exact uh, number for how infectious it is. And so we're still kind of nailing that down. But so far, the, the estimate is that it would have to be between 70 and 90% of people would need to be immune to have herd immunity for COVID-19. So still a pretty decent chunk of the population. Some of the other factors that are kind of rolled up into this is the mortality rate. You know, if we need that many people to have been infected with it, you know, then the mortality rate could skyrocket. And the other thing is we don't really know if people are immune to it after you've had COVID-19. There's uh, been a few studies uh, showing that maybe you could get reinfected, but maybe not display the symptoms a second time around. So there's still some uncertainty there as well. Researchers are trying to nail this down. Um, there is some good early evidence. You know, people are developing antibodies. Um, we don't as of yet, have any cases of people being reinfected that we know of for sure. So that's a good sign. If, you know, if immunity faded within six weeks, we'd probably know that by now. So these are all good early signs. But unfortunately, you know, we, we just don't know if you get it once, you can never get it again, or you can get it again a year later, two years later. We, we're not going to know that until some time has passed. Yeah. And, and part of that, too, is, um, you know, it could lie dormant in your body or other, even other viruses can lie dormant and reemerge later. And we don't know if that's the case for COVID-19 yet. We don't know if we completely kill it off in the body or if it has this, dor you know, if it lies dormant in you and can reemerge. Right. So viruses and different pathogens can do different things in our body. We don't always just fight it off, get immunity, and we're safe for the rest of our life. That would be great. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, even something like chickenpox. So if you get exposed to chickenpox as a kid and you get sick, we don't ever actually completely clear that virus from our body. And sometimes it can reemerge. And that's what causes actually shingles in, in older people. It's the exact same virus that's just been dormant in their cells and eventually decided to come back and, and attack again. And so there's different ways that our body fights off and remembers and prevents infection. And, there, you know, because this is a new pathogen, this is something we've never experienced before. Researchers just don't know for sure. They need to figure those things out and, and answer those questions still. I mean, it's so tough because all of these questions, as we're going through this in real time and we're hearing stories about uh, vaccines and treatments all in real time, you know, a lot of these questions aren't really going to be answered for so many years to come. It, it's just kind of going to have to be a, 
a looking back type of thing to really see where the numbers truly lie. And so this whole notion of herd immunity really would have to work in conjunction with a vaccine. It's not going to just happen all of a sudden on its own. You know, if so many people get it, we'd have millions and millions of deaths if that was going to happen. Right. If we were to just lift everything, go completely back to normal and let the disease kind of burn through the population, it would just be devastating. And everything that we've learned about this disease so far is not making that seem any rosier of a picture. Um, that said, though, I, I, you know, I got a lot of feedback from this piece of people saying, like, so what are you saying? We have to stay in our homes until there's a vaccine. And that's not the case, necessarily. There's other options that are being explored. Experts are looking at ways that we can start to, you know, open parts of society um, be able to carefully track and trace this disease and and be able to stop the spread in other ways uh, up until we get to the point where we have a vaccine. So I don't think it has to be one extreme or the other. There's parts in the middle. And we, what we need to do is take this sort of time that we've bought by all staying inside and socially distancing and use that to set up the things we need to do so that we can start to open things up safely and we don't have to all go back inside right away. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting how this is all playing out. You know, states, people are ready to get back to normal and, and we're slowly getting there. But on the scientific and medical side of this thing, there's still a lot yet to be done, especially when it comes to effective treatments and, and herd immunity, as we've been talking about. Kaylee Rogers, reporter at 538.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. Some good news this week for regions that are reopening their economies. A recent study from South Korea is showing that COVID-19 patients that have tested positive after recovering are not infectious. These so-called repositive patients weren't spreading any lingering infection and were shedding only dead virus particles. For more on what we're learning about how contagious someone could be after recovering from the virus, we spoke to Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. This is a really interesting piece of research, they basically looked at people who had had COVID and later tested positive, even though it had been some period of time since they had been sick, and basically attempted to answer this question of, are people still infectious even later on? And the researchers seem to think that they are not infectious, which is good news because knowing that people have recovered and are no longer infectious is extremely important, obviously, as we try to reopen economies and send people back to work and school and things like that. And it's also kind of a hopeful note in terms of this still lingering question about whether people who have had COVID and survived and recovered are immune, although that's still, I think, something many people would tell you is still a big unanswered question at this point. I want to make sure I get this right. These people that tested positive again were they sick again? Were they showing symptoms themselves or they just tested positive after previously getting over it and having a negative test? So they had recovered. It sounds like the researchers had had a negative test from them and then they had another positive test. They're calling them, quote unquote, repositive patients. So that's important here because there's also been an indicator that they have a negative test. But more importantly, the researchers in Korea believe that the diagnostic tests we use aren't well able to distinguish between sort of active particles of the virus and particles of the virus that are not active and, and aren't able to sort of be infectious. So that's kind of the key thing here. This really underscores the limitation of the diagnostic tests that we have rather than sort of making bigger sweeping kind of 
conclusions for us about how coronavirus works. So in these people that had recovered, they also had some antibodies against this. And that's also interesting, too. Uh, You compared this a little bit to a recent study in Singapore about SARS, people who had recovered from SARS, and they had neutralizing antibodies 9 to 17 years after their initial infection. Now, we don't Mm -hmm. know, obviously, if this is the case with COVID-19 specifically, but it is kind of a cousin virus, let's say. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of the thing. The hope is that your antibodies would protect you for quite some time after getting infected. We've seen it be this way with other viruses, right? We've seen antibodies be protective in other scenarios, but there are a lot of limitations due to the fact that this is a coronavirus. And we also don't know if there is immunity, how long it lasts. And that's kind of the biggest question right now, kind of underscoring every public health effort we launch, every private sector effort around coronavirus. I mean, the answer to this question is going to have really widespread implications. And, you know, you might be able to say, we believe this, we assume there probably is immunity, at least some level of immunity, but we just don't know that for sure, because we haven't studied that specifically at this point and been able to come to a firm conclusion. Tell me a little bit more about people testing positive again, because some of these tests can't distinguish between dead and virus particles. Because this was one of the discussions that I was having with somebody else of, does the virus just lie dormant or do we get rid of it completely? So what does this kind of mean on that front? Understanding that researchers have is that the virus particles may remain in cells even after they've sort of been inactivated. So the idea is that our uh, the tests we have aren't always, they believe, able to distinguish between active and inactive particles. And I think it's worth noting, like, this is just sort of one element of a larger discussion we're having around diagnostic tests and how well they work on the whole. I mean, can we rely on a test that you take when you're sick to be the be-all, end-all in terms of saying you have coronavirus, you don't have coronavirus? And I think this study is just the sort of the latest proof that there are extremely important limitations that we have to consider. I think many doctors would tell you if you're someone and you test negative for COVID-19, like, they may still think you might have it and they may still tell you to self-quarantine. They may still tell you to be extremely cautious in your behavior, not go outside for 14 days and the like, because there are other factors at play and we can't rely entirely on these tests to just tell us yes or no. But as you mentioned at the beginning, this is a positive sign for regions that are reopening their economies, so much so that South Korea has revised a bunch of its protocols And basically saying that if you've recovered from this, you went through your period of isolation, you're good to go. Move freely. We don't have to worry about you anymore. Right. And I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, I actually just spoke with a person in public health in Utah who was saying they've seen the same problem, right? People had COVID-19, they recovered, and they can test positive for sometimes months afterwards. And she said, you know, we're just following the CDC protocols, which are, I think, probably pretty aligned with what Korea is doing, sort of just basically waiting a certain amount of time after people have symptoms, you know, ensuring they've recovered and kind of following that protocol around infection. So I think, you know, it does pose, you know, knowing this emerging evidence around how antibodies with this disease work will kind of embolden public health officials, you know, not just in in Korea, but uh, around the world in terms of making some of these decisions. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.